grab your seat today. Let me pray over you. We just thank you, Jesus. We thank you that we can stand and sing. We thank you that we can come and we can be in your presence. We thank you that we can sit back and we can bask in your glory. We thank you that in the midst of everything that we have going on in our weeks, we can be with you. And in confidence, we can call ourselves your children. We love that, Jesus. Lord, it's so important for what we're talking about today for us to understand that while we gather, we have this amazing cornerstone and it's this idea that you're faithful. Lord, we just, we camp on that today. We camp on the fact that we've got you in the bank. It's you we bank on in your faithfulness that you will always come through, you will always deliver. That's the cry of the church back to its father. We say this in your name, amen. Okay, well, church, I'm excited. I've got two weeks with you, uh, both this week and I decided I'm gonna preach next week. And it's gonna be, just to give you the lay of the land, we're in Hebrews 10, we're gonna be verses 23, 24, and 25. And we're gonna kind of talk through, we've been doing a lot of challenging lately. How many of you have felt that in here? How many of you feel challenged right now by the just church and what's going on? Thank you for being honest, all five of you. <clears throat> We're doing a lot of challenging right now. And here's the, here, here's the, the difficult part uh, about growth. And we talked a little bit about this last, last week. The venue grows. And there, in, inherently, there are people who kind of come into the venue as a part of Scottsdale Bible Church, and they're new to it. And so a lot of the things, they feel different. And they're not used to the DNA or they're sort of figuring out what, is, what does it look like to kind of be a part of the family in here. So Derek and myself are always walking this balance between nurture and challenge. Nurture and challenge. And we're going back and forth and we're challenging uh, behaviors. And so some of you may sit back sometimes and go, gosh, we're talking about how we worship again. Like, are we not doing it right? That's not the point. That's not what we're saying. It's, it's that we're constantly kind of recasting a vision and saying, listen, you have freedom. It should be liberating. So what I don't ever want you to hear from Derek or myself is this idea of like, our pastors are disappointed in us. No, no, no. Your pastors are exceedingly proud of you. And I sit back sometimes, if you ever watch me in worship down here in the corner, sometimes I'll sit back just and, and kind of quietly turn and just look at what God's people are doing as they're crying out their hearts to God. And it just fills me with joy. So I just want to clarify, like as we're continuing to challenge you guys, some of which I'll do today, I just want you to hear it through the lens of we're proud of you, we love you. It's not disappointment, it's challenge, and we're receiving that challenge as well. And so just kind of always hear that as we continue to, to walk through some of these things. And so today is a challenging passage. It's got a lot in it. And so let's read it here. I'll go ahead and throw it up on the screen and I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. Now, as, as we do this, I wanna take it just verse by verse. We've only got three verses today. So 23, 24, and 25. When we look at 23, I want you to see something within the verse. It's really got three parts to it, and this is helpful when we try to understand it. 23 is doing three things. It's telling us to do something. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. It's telling us to do it in a certain way without wavering. 
And then beyond that, it's telling us a certain motivation, which is for he who promised is faithful. So if we just take that first part, and this is kind of a a key thing for you today, you've got to see, or none of this will make sense. I can argue that actually the Christian life won't make sense if you don't see what I'm about to say, and that's this. Hope is so central to the gospel. It's so central. In fact, it is the quintessential element that we have to offer to the world. If you don't see that, sometimes some of you went, and you kind of bristled at that. The the thing that you have that will be the fragrance that a non-believer will see or hear in your life is hope. And it's not just here in Hebrews where we see it. Here it says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Listen to 1 Peter 3.15. It says this, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Hope is what the world is going to see in you. It's what they're going to kind of smell in your life and go, I like that. What is that? And and this is where I want to kind of make this really practical for a second. If we live our Christian lives the wrong way with with an improper understanding of of the centrality of hope in 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 our Christian lives, you will short circuit everything God is trying to do in the lives of the world around you. The example being... Somebody is not going to look at your life and say, you know what, that person never struggles. I want to talk to them about how they never struggle. If somebody thinks you never struggle, they're probably not going to approach you about things. So if, if the whole mantra of your life is, I have to prove to non-believers that I'm not sinful, that I don't struggle, that's not going to draw them in. If anything, it will be the way that you struggle and the fact that you struggle that will start to draw a non-believer in. So the reality is it starts to sound like this, church. Uh, you're sitting in your cube one day at work, and, and in walks a colleague, and they go, hey, how you doing? And you go, well, I, I'm okay. And they go, oh, just okay? What's up? So actually, we, we just found out this last week that my husband was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, my gosh. R- seriously? Yeah, well, I mean, how are you doing with that? Well, we're okay, but we actually have a lot of hope right now. What do you mean? Oh, so you already got the test back. The prognosis is promising. No, no, all that testing comes later. That'll happen in the next couple of weeks. But right now, we have a tremendous amount of hope. We've been diving into prayer. Our kids have been surrounded by the youth group at church. Our small group is really rallying around us. We, we have a surprising amount of hope. And some of it we can't even explain, but we're just, we're doing really well. What's that person gonna do? They are faced with the reality that they cannot explain. Very difficult news. Struggle, emotional, relational, potential life-threatening cancer. And now an individual who is sitting there in peace going, we have a lot of hope despite the fact that we're struggling. Here's how that works out. That person has something go on in their life later, and next thing you know, they're right back in your cube. Hey, sorry. Um, We just found out our daughter's wrestling with depression. And we're sort of at the end of our rope. I don't even know why I'm in your cube right now, but I just feel like maybe we could talk or go to a coffee this week. Yeah. Let me give you, let me hold fast to the confession of my hope. That's the tip of the spear of your evangelical influence into a society that's hurting. I'm struggling, but I struggle with hope. I'm hurting, but I hurt with hope. Why? 
because you're not enamored with all of the temporal things of this world. You have vision for life eternal. You have Christ. So we'll talk about the motivation here. So again, we're not, we're doing something. What's that something? We are holding fast to the confession of our hope. How do we do that? Without wavering. Now think about it for a second. Hebrews is written to the early church. What's going on in the early church? Heavy persecution. I'm reading a ton of church history right now. And what I'm realizing is Christianity, when it first got going, not super cool. People weren't pumped about this. Not the least of which, like the Greco-Roman culture. They were really chapped that Christianity was becoming a thing. And so what's happening is, we've talked about this before, martyrs are being drugged into the Colosseum, wrapped in the skins of animals, and being devoured by lions. They are being taken and speared on spikes, covered in tar and being set ablaze to light the gardens of Nero, burned alive. They are being, at the very least, now listen to this, because we don't have a category for what it means to say, yes, I'm a Christian, and say, congratulations, that just cost you your life and the lives of your family. We don't have a category for that. So let's bring it down a notch. The least of which they were experiencing was this. They would go into the marketplace and say, hey, we've done business for years. I've now got my fish to be able to sell. And he would say, just found out you're one of those Christians. That not only threatens me because I don't want to go there, but it threatens the whole Greco-Roman way of life. You will not worship Caesar, who's one of our gods. You are threatening the Roman way of doing things. You can't sell here anymore. And you can't be a part of our friend group. You can't be a part of any ostracized. There were economic implications, social, relational implications. Can you imagine if that were your reality, we would be screaming, one nation under God, this is persecution, this is not okay. They didn't have the ability to do that. The clinging, the holding fast portion of what the author of Hebrews is asking here is a tremendous request to a first century church. Now let's boil it down for us today. How many times do we potentially waver in our faith because we're worried we'll look weird? Because we're worried we'll make someone uncomfortable? Because we're not really sure if it's gonna go over well long-term with this person. Now listen, you guys have heard me advocate. Relationship is a great way to evangelize. But in the kind of example I just described, there's an out, isn't there? When someone comes into your cube, you can say, the typical corporate answer to how was your weekend? What, what's everybody say at the water cooler? It was fine. That's exactly right. It was fine. We're fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Or you can hold fast to a confession of your hope. You can tell someone something scary and be transparent with the world around you and tell them it's kind of hard right now. And here's why. That is holding fast without wavering, not worried about what this person will think and being okay with leaving the results of that conversation in the hands of Jesus to do something with later. But we hold fast, we do it, we do something, we hold fast to the confession of our hope, we do it in this way without, without wavering, and then lastly, we do it with a motivation, and that motivation is that he who promised is faithful. Now, this is key. You guys hear me quote two verses over and over again in part because I've sort of lasered them into my brain as like the two verses that I go to when I'm sort of wavering a little bit. I remind myself who I'm banking on. If you need two verses for that, memorize these. Philippians 1.6 as well as Romans 8.28. 
Memorize those two, or even in part. Now, once I say them, you'll go, I know that one. Good, bring it up more often. Philippians 1.6 says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He is faithful to complete the work that he started in you. So for those of you that are halfway through a restoration season right now and you're sort of going, life's really hard and I'm not sure I want to keep doing this, stop. Philippians 1.6, he'll bring it to completion. Yeah, I know, but my marriage is really struggling right now. I know, hang in there, he'll bring it to completion. Yeah, I know, but our finance, I, I know, hang in there, honor God, continue to walk it out with him, let him bring it to completion. Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, anybody wanna finish this one? All things work together for good. I know, but my circumstances are hard. I'm, gonna, I'm crafting a sermon in my head, it's not done, but it's in part because I've got a great friend who reminded me, he'll be in the 11 o'clock, we don't have a good theology of suffering in the church. We're not okay with uncomfortable. That's why we call it Good Friday, because the church isn't okay with bad news. <laughs> church, there's nothing good about it. The good is Easter. And there's a sermon somewhere in my brain that's gonna find its way out about it wasn't a Good Friday. In fact, if we journey back and we talk about the first Good Friday, heaven watched its champion die with no promise of an Easter morning. That's not good news at all. But we have a tough time mourning in the church. It's okay to mourn because guess what? Gold requires heat, pearls require friction, and diamonds require pressure. And if you remove those unattractive forces, you lose treasure. Your life is the same way. Cling to Romans 8.28. Remember that the difficult forces in your life at time are curating something unbelievable, treasure that you will pass on to others in your life. Because it's, we encourage others with what we've been encouraged with by God, that's Corinthians. So remember that. Now, here's how this process works. It's circular, okay? This verse works in a circular fashion. We hold to hope, we don't waver, and he is faithful, and so we have hope. Your Christian life is this wonderful little process of being on an adventure with God and you continue to have hope because you finished an adventure and he's faithful so he finishes it. Then you invest that hope into the next adventure you're on with God. And you walk it out in hope, holding fast to that confession in faith, knowing he'll do it and he comes through. He's faithful, he's faithful. That's how you end up as a 70-year-old believer sitting there someday having been on a 70-year adventure with Jesus that he's continued to be faithful in, and you sit there and you go, I know two things. I've boiled the Christian life down to two things. I have heard incredibly mature believers say this. God is good and God is faithful, and I need know nothing else. That is it. He is good and he is faithful. He is good and he is faithful. Pressure produces treasure. That's what I do. But that's how you get there, because you reinvest the hope from the last adventure into the next one, and he yields a dividend, he yields fruit, and you reinvest that into the next adventure. That's what this process looks like. So that's verse 23, and the author takes verse 23 and sort of lays it in this little three-verse section as, unless you understand this, we can't go to what is next where he says, now, with that in place, and with that as an understanding, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Let us talk about now, what do we do now that this circular process for us is in place, now what do we do? And stir one another up to, to good deeds. Now, this sermon is entitled, Why Do We Gather? 
I hear this all the time. I have a lot of friends who'll sit back and go, honestly, Rustin, I'm the church. We're the church. If I go to like brunch with my friends on a Sunday, aren't we gathered? And I'm like, okay. I mean, yes, you're gathered. But what I want to do with the next two verses, I hope shows you that, yes, you are the gathered church, but you need the gathered church. And there's a lot of things you're doing with your gathering that aren't meeting all the needs of what the church is supposed to meet. So to do that, let's look at it. I want to start with a question here. When you come to the venue each and every week, this is the challenge part. I want to press in a little bit. When you come to the venue each week, are you intending to stir one another or to be stirred? When you walk in those doors, is this just the last box in your week that you're like, nailed it, church, done, got it? Or are you coming with kind of this idea that there's more? There's more, because here's the reality. You can walk in those doors. You may hear the last verse I'm gonna preach on. You may hear 25 and go, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And you may go, I don't neglect it. I'm here four weeks out of the month. This is a no-brainer. I already nailed it, done. Here's the reality. Church, you can walk into this room and have no intention of stirring or being stirred at all. You can walk in, hear stuff, Never let it really sink in very much and never, and this is the hard part, go from there. So here's a, a, a tough question that I'm gonna throw up here. It's one of our main points today. Do you come expecting to consume or intending to engage? Derek asked me that. He said, you know, Rustin, the reason you're gonna preach this sermon, because I said, here's where I wanna go. He goes, perfect. Here, here's the reality. Every person in this room is gonna show up next week. You have an opportunity to change how and why they do that. Because if we ask this question and we say, do you come expecting to consume or intending to engage, it stirs something in you, doesn't it? It makes you ask, what are you doing while you're here? I know you're here. I see you all in the same seats every week. I love that. But now I want to go a little further and say, what is it? Now, here's the, here's the reality for this question. This is actually a process. It's not an exclusive decision. It's basically, do you come expecting to consume and intending to engage? And I'm gonna use an example that I think has been really helpful for me, and, and it's with another organization, because if I just use this in the church, it's like, okay, so let's step out of the church for a second, and I'll use an example with, uh, with AA, okay? Now you guys know my background, I've been in recovery for years now, and AA taught me a lot of really important things about how I should function in a group where I'm both consuming and engaging. I walked into AA and, and as I rolled in, I was in pretty good shape, as you can imagine. And they looked at me and they said, hey bro, um, AA is the last house on the block. And it had been a pretty rough eight months by the time I'd gotten in there. And so uh, I said, I'm not totally tracking with what you mean there. And they said, nobody walks in here on a winning streak. And I had more than enough evidence to prove that that was absolutely true. And so as I sat there, I, I kind of started to go, I don't really have anything to offer. When I walked in to Alcoholics Anonymous, all I had was the ability to take my spoon, put it in the bowl, and put it to my mouth. I could consume because I was in need of help and care. Now, what happens after a while, there's basically the entire program, the 12 steps of AA, can be broken down into three parts. This is how they work. Steps one through three are no God, steps four through nine are clean house, and steps 10 through 12 are carry the message, okay? That's it, no God, clean house, carry the message. Now, when someone walks into AA as a broken little drunk like I did, you, you, all you can do is, is start in the beginning, start to know God. You're not ready to carry the message yet. You have nothing to carry. 
It's time to just consume. But what happens, and I've watched it, I've watched it happen over and over again in the, in the rooms, someone starts just kind of walking along and developing a program, and the next thing you know, all of a sudden, somebody looks at them and goes, hey, I want what you have. And here's what's awesome. The first time it happens to you, it scares you to death. Someone walks up and says, hey, would you sponsor me? And you're like, I, you don't want me. I just started this. I've only been here like however long. And they look at you and they go, yeah, I know, but I've only been here three days. Like, I'm, I'm in really bad shape. Like, would you sponsor me? Would you start? And someone does something incredible. They go from only consuming to now they continue to consume, but they turn around and they start to now feed someone else. They continue to consume because they need to be fed to keep them sober. But at the same time, they're now feeding someone who's coming behind them. And you know what, church? AA is a beautiful, beautiful reflection of God's church. It works the same way in here. When someone walks in as a baby believer, all broken and cut up and bruised from what the world has done to them and what they've done to themselves in the world, they come in here, they're not, they're not ready to do anything. They show up to me here and they walk up and go, I'm a hot mess. And I go, amen, you are. And that's perfect because you're in the right spot. So now let's start walking your hot mess out. And this is my favorite thing to do. It will happen all the time. A gal comes to mind who she came in here, all sorts of broken. The Lord started to just radically alter this woman's life, like turn it upside down for Jesus. And she kind of starts walking. I will never forget the day I walked over and I said, hey, I got a gal who's really hurting right now. She's got a very similar story to yours, all sorts of brokenness in her marriage. And she just needs somebody to have coffee with. Would you go to coffee with her and would you tell her what it's like, what happened, and what it's like now? What it's like, tell her about your brokenness, what happened, tell her about how Jesus has been restoring you, and what it's like now as you start to walk that out. All of a sudden, consuming now became engaging. And she was now giving back out of what God had given to her. The reality for the church is this. If you come here every week and all you do is consume, you'll get fat. It's just like your diet. If all you do is sit in the barca lounger of your life and you just eat and you never get up out of it, you will get fat. And the internal conditions that come with that sometimes, this is going to be penetrating on a bunch of different levels for some of us. If you just sit there, all of a sudden you start to feel the guilt and the shame of the fact that all you're doing is consuming food. It's the same way in your spiritual life. If you're sitting back and all you're doing is coming in here each and every week, there is an internal pressure that starts to build that you are not giving away what God is giving to you. However, if you walk in here and all you do is engage and you never consume, you'll starve. You need both, church. You have to be both eating and expelling those spiritual calories. You've got to do both. If you don't, you will either starve or you will get so bloated on all the things that God's given you that all of a sudden you're going to be in the spot just going, I don't even know where to start. It's like, well, you got too much. You need to start giving that stuff away. And that's how it works. Okay, so now let's get real practical with our application. Our application is I think we do four things. So basically it's like, well, what do you mean when you say engage or stir? I think the church has four functions. It has a bunch, but I'm gonna try and narrow it down to four that you can bite-size piece and walk out of here with today. The first one is this. We welcome the church and the city. That is one of the functions of the gathered, the assembled body. We welcome the church and the city. When you come in here each week, what do we have you do? Greet each other. That's part of it. There is a warmth in gathering around the family. It feels good to come home. Amen? Okay, in addition to that, 
we welcome the city. And you say, well, come on, what does that mean? Here's the reality. Since the beginning of time, the church has been a place of refuge. Again, I'm doing a bunch of church, church history. Monasteries used to function also as hostels, as hospitals, all these different things. You could be a weary traveler and you'd walk into a big city and it would be like 11 o'clock at night and you would be able to walk in, knock on the door of the local monastery and be able to say, I'm a weary traveler, I have no place to go. And a monk would bring you in and find you a bed. He'd give you food and get you back out the next morning. The, the hopeless, the broken, those who came upon physical times or illness, they would boom, boom, boom on the church and tuck away. The church has always been a place of refuge. Now, I see this today. I had a guy just roll in a few months ago and he looked at me, he was all broken and sad. I can always tell those people because at times they'll wait till the very end of the greeting time at the end when I'm praying with people. They'll tuck away like in the back and pretend like they're reading their bulletin. And I'm like, if you read that thing cover to cover, it wouldn't take you 25 minutes, but that's fine. And they'll come up and they'll just kind of go, hey, can we talk? And I'm like, yep, and I know where we're going and I love it. Guy sat there and he just said, I haven't been in church for 13 years. I don't feel at home here. This place I feel like has ostracized me. It's broken my heart, I feel hurt. And yet this is where I'm supposed to be. I don't know where I fit, but I know that God is calling me home. This is my safe place. Another woman walked up at the end of a service, shaken like a leaf, bless her heart. And I was standing there and she kind of came forward and I said, hey, how are you doing? And I remember that day during announcements, I had said this word, which seemed like a, it sounded weird. I said, you know what? I want the venue to be a safe place. And this woman came up and she said, I just want you to know, you said safe during the announcements. You said that this was a safe place. That really meant something to me. I really appreciate that. She since then has gotten really involved. She's gone through our membership class. She's now a thriving part of the serving body each and every week. In addition to that, she came back and told me the rest of her story a couple of weeks ago. And she said, I had walked into church that day, kind of on my last legs. I'd asked God for four signs. And you saying safe was one of them. When I said it, I felt uncomfortable. And yet God used it in this woman's life to say refuge. This is a place. Here's why that's important. You go, well, great, that's good. So you got a lot to do, Rustin. No, you do. You need to be here, and here's why. Because when those two people come on rough times, they're not gonna knock on your front door. That's not how it works. The reputation of your home is not a place of refuge. The reputation of the gathered church is. And like I've said before, there is 900 of us here. Like the venue, each and every week, has got about eight to 900 folks in it. Guys, I can't, I can't anymore. It's too big. The hands and the feet of Jesus have to function. When we were 400 when we first got in here, yeah. If 1% of the venue went down on a week, I'd have three to four meetings. I could keep up with that. Now, between 800, sometimes 1,000, no. Just if 1% has a rough week, I have 10 meetings. I can't do all of that and everything else. The reality is my job is Ephesians 4.12, and I'm doing it today, equipping the church to do the work of the ministry. And let me tell you, you don't wanna miss out on that. So that's why, that's part of why we gather, so that we can go back. Two, we encourage, so we welcome the church in the city, and two, we encourage each other and those who gather here. Anybody clipping through life just going, man, this is so easy? No, we're not. Life's hard. Like I'll tell you, parenting, this is not for the weak. 
you all aren't messing around about this parenting thing. These kids are for real. <laughs> we need encouragement. We're in all these different seasons of life and we need encouragement. I'm gonna challenge you to do something just in the way you think about your Sundays. Now, some of us go to church on Saturday, but this will apply because we're all here for Sunday. Let your Sunday be the beginning of your week, not the end. Here's what I mean. Now, it's always that way for me because I work Sunday through Thursdays and Friday, Saturday are my days off. So if you let Saturday be the end of your week, the last day of your week is, in theory, kind of a day off where you rest and you kind of gather. And then if you start your week on Sundays, the first fruits of your week, where you're, in theory, freshest coming off a rest day, go to the Lord. And you show up here fresh and ready to come in and go, I got to kind of gather. I need to be stirred and I need to be stirring. I need to be encouraged and encourage others. And then you walk out of this Sunday gathered experience, this assembled kind of time, and you have another half of a day to kind of soak it in before you tackle the work week and then come back out of it. You see, that's different, isn't it? That's a game changer, and it's a, it's a simple shift. Nothing's gonna change except you thinking about the fact that you've got half of Friday and Saturday to sort of rest and prepare your heart to come and both consume and engage the following day on Sunday before you go tackle your work week, which you'd better have consumed and engaged or it's gonna wear you out. Anybody get to Wednesday and go, is, what is going on? Why is it not Friday yet? You need to be encouraged at the front end of your week, not the end of it. If you leave Sunday at the end of your week, it's just the last thing you gotta do before you start Monday. That doesn't sound fun. This is cooler than that, amen? This needs to be cooler than that. I, I love this, I have great friends, but Jessica Neal this last week, I, a lot of, I create sermons kind of in community sometimes. And so I was sitting there and I had Jessica Neal and Michelle as I was running some of this through them and Jessica said this, she said, the gathering is the beginning of the week, not the end. And that's where that whole thought came from was just Jess going, I need this before I start my week. Okay, three, we care for each other. We have to. Okay, like I just said, there's so many of us here. We've gotta be caring for each other. And what I wanna encourage is this, spirit-led interactions during greeting time. We talked about that last week. Big challenge last week is I said, just take some time and pray for each other. Church permission from your pastor, here's how this will work. If we get done with the greeting time and I see two of you kind of over there praying and you're kind of, nothing I'm gonna say during announcements or a sermon for that matter is as important as you caring for that person. That's how important us being cared for by each other. That's how the body of Christ heals its wounds. It's a self-correcting entity. It's that we start getting healed by finding refuge in each other. If you neglect the assembly, you're going to miss out on that. So that's part of that encouragement. And then in addition to that, if you're praying for someone in a Sunday, is there a good chance that their problem doesn't get solved right then and there? Might you wanna kind of pray for them throughout the week? Potentially, I know this sounds awkward, get an email from them and say, can I just follow up with you this week and just encourage you? Take it beyond a Sunday. How many of you go, ooh, that's kind of weird. I don't want to have to ask for someone's personal info. They'll think I'm going to try and sell them something. You're not. And, and you know what? The worst case is that they kind of go, you know what? Let's, let's kind of try this out for uh, you know, a, a Sunday or two before we go giving out emails. That's fine. 
but continue to pray for them throughout the week. You're going to see them next week. They sit by you every week. Okay. And if you love somebody so much that they change sides of the room, they sit on congratulations. You nailed it. All right. That's the right kind of love. Lastly, I would just say on this point is that you've got to be willing to use your gifts both in the church and in the city. All right. Now, Shannon Cox, who's like our head of volunteerism and like our whole connect piece right now, her head's going to explode. But there's 6,000 people that call Scottsdale Bible home. I don't have 6,000 jobs around here for people to do for volunteers. Like everybody just freaked out that I said that. But the reality is you may be looking around going, I don't know, but there's just, I, I need to connect somewhere. Great. You know what? We got a whole city that's hurting out there. So if you're sitting back under the comfort of, I sent in my email one time and nobody ever got back to me, you're not off the hook. There is a city that's hurting out there. Find a floor to mop, find a toilet to clean, take your administrative skills and go volunteer at a nonprofit. Take your accounting skills and go help some of these groups that are struggling because they can't afford a CPA and help them get their stuff in line so they can go serve the city better. And when they ask you, why are you doing this? Hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering but go out and use your gifts in the city. Lastly, and this is kind of where we're gonna hone it in because it's today and it's next week. When we come to the church, our fourth point today, we experience sacred things. We experience what we'll do in a minute, communion. We experience baptism. The sacraments, sacred things that we do as a church together. Now, could you partake in communion at your home? Could you do that? Yes. Are you? No. No, we're not. Could you baptize someone in your pool? Yep. You can. Have you? You have not. Okay? Now, I got baptized in a pool. Me and my mom got baptized in a pool. It had a sun devil at the bottom of it. It's neither here nor there, right? Some of you are going, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But, yes, we can do these things. I baptize people in pools. My wife got baptized in the Puget Sound. It was freezing, okay? But the reality is, yes, you can, but no, you probably won't. And that's why we come here. We gather to do these things together, assembled as the body, so we can go there. And all of this is why verse 25 is redundant. Because it's telling you in 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. If you neglect to gather, if you neglect to meet, you will miss all of this. Because the reality is, you probably won't do it on your own in a consistent way. You've got to be willing to come in and to partake. There's like a whole nother sermon on having good spiritual authority in your life that I'm not going to touch on today. But these are just the practicals, guys. These are just the call to all of this. And the biggest thing, and this is where I'll cast vision as the band kind of starts to make their way back up. I want you to have an experience I want you to have an experience where you're both engaging and consuming, where you're both pouring and being poured into, where you are stirring and you are being stirred. I want you to have an experience that I get to have on a regular basis. And it is so humbling that you will lose sight of yourself in the midst of the moment I'm about to describe. And it's for every one of you. It's not just for me. The, the moment I want you to have is I want you to be sitting there with someone and I want you to be pouring into them using your gifts. I want you to be sitting there in the midst of their broken moment, 
loving them, being the hands and the feet of Jesus. And then when they look up at you with tear-filled eyes and say, how could I ever say thank you? How could I ever possibly repay the sacrificial gift of your time and your resources in the midst of my greatest need? How could I say thank you? You get to say the greatest thing in the history of mankind. You'll never need to. You'll never need to because you know two things in your heart. One, someone else did it for you. And two, this is what you were designed to do. I want you to have that experience. And some of you are sitting back right now and you're just qualifying yourself. You're going, no, that's not for me. Guys, listen, if there's somebody who it wasn't for, it's this guy. It's me. It's the broken, sad guy who wandered back into the venue years ago because his buddy was leading it and said, my life's such a mess. All I'm hoping is to survive. I'm hoping this girl will stay with me and stay married. I'm hoping that like, I can finally pull my life together. And what did the Lord do with it? He went, oh, great. As of right now, 900 people, you'll care for them. Wait, what? Guys, if he can do that with me, imagine what he can do with you. What if 900 of us just said yes and out of faith to the faithful one with hope went into the world without wavering and said, what can I do, Lord? What's my purpose? How do I serve you? Whether there's a paycheck attached to it or not. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to the communion table now and I'm gonna send you with kind of a specific question. That question is this. I want you to think about how sacrificially Christ serves you. That's where I want you to kind of gather your heart today. Gather your heart around how sacrificially Christ serves you. And then as we spend some time, and I'll come back up, the ushers can start making their way forward. We're going to kind of distribute the elements. As I come back up to partake in the elements, between those two times, what I want you to do is I want you to think about whether or not you are sacrificially serving your king the way that he sacrificially serves you. Now, to the same degree, you're not going to do that. He's going to outdo you every time. But are you following his lead of sacrificial service to the body of Christ that is in desperate need? Dwell on that as we go to the table.